to forging her vindictives, dreaming about a premiership cup. We love our clubs, but they never win. Two flags in 100 years. That shit house, if you think we'll be insightful, clever or just well researched. To say that's not the case, we'll just go out and wing it. We are two guys, one cup. Hello and welcome to Two Guys, One Cup Summer Edition. My name is Charlie Clawson and this is my club. And this week I chatted with Emma Race. She is the host and producer of the Outer Sanctum podcast, a truly great football podcast, much better than our podcast. Not enough chat about haircuts if you ask me, but still... A pretty good footy podcast. Uh, Emma is also the number one ticket holder at the Hawthorne Football Club. And she was very gracious uh, in the way that she brought up her club's many, many premierships. She didn't want to rub it in. So if you're someone who is triggered by Hawthorne supporters or find them a little smug, this is not Emma. Emma is a Hawthorne supporter that will be like your, uh, your gateway Hawthorne supporter. You accept her into your life and then you can accept Hawthorne into your life. Am I sounding like some kind of crazy religious cult leader? Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, Emma Race. Emma, it's not often that I prepare a drink before I do one of these chats, uh, but knowing you're a Hawthorne supporter and me being a, a St Kilda supporter, I've, I've poured the strongest drink I could find in the cupboard. There's a tequila here. <laughs> so as you just like regale me with all the premierships that you've enjoyed over your lifetime, you may see me drain that glass. Oh. I do see it as my challenge, Charlie, not to come off as just a giant asshole because being a Hawthorne supporter is, um, it's a lovely challenge to have, but people just hate us and I I totally get it. I hate Richmond supporters at the Mm. moment. I even went through a very short phase of hating Bulldog supporters, which I now feel regretful about. (laughs) I've certainly never felt any animosity towards St Kilda. In fact, I feel like St Kilda and Hawthorne people have some synergy and now you've got Ruffy and Rats and... I feel mm. like we've we've had some, you know, there's that beautiful story of Russell Green playing for St Kilda and then getting the tap on the shoulder, almost like he's in Major League, you know, baseball. Sorry, buddy, next yeah. week you're off to play for Hawthorne. And then, of course, Yabby James is like the ultimate. Yeah, and in, in, in the late 80s and the early 90s when I started really following, you know, the Saints and going to Moorabbin, we got a whole bunch of discards from your premiership run. We got like Peter Russo and Paul Harding. And I love those guys because, you know, you saw the difference between the attitudes and the way they prepared, the way they committed themselves. You know, maybe they'd lost a yard or two, but I think for St Kilda supporters, it's funny, by the way, you've hit uh, Two Guys, One Cup bingo by saying that you've never really hated St Kilda. That is an ongoing theme <laughs> in this. And as I say to everyone, I find that more of a, a, a an insult than you mean it to be because what you're saying is you, there's nothing to fear with St Kilda. <laughs> when did. have we ever held your feet to the fire? Well, you actually beat us last season in what was actually a pretty important game for Hawthorne and it all slipped away because St Kilda beat us. And I think I do blame Jared Ruffhead for that. I also have some <laughs> animosity towards and I, I'd like to make sure we keep bringing the women's teams into this, but St Kilda's been a real feeder for the fact that Hawthorne doesn't have a women's team at the moment. They have mm. just come along to Waverley and said, we'll take the bunch, thanks. And you've got a really yeah. powerful team and a lot of yeah. them are Hawthorne born and bred. So um, I do feel a slight amount of animosity and, and certainly if you win a premiership in the W this year, I'll be pretty cross. Well, let's just say that Dermot Burton was in a St Kilda recruiting zone and he went to the Hawks. So you give us the AFLW stars. 
and you can keep Dermot with his five premierships, five daytime, five nighttime premierships. Oh, do you think that's now he's like changed his name by deed poll to be five day, five night? I mean, really, who cares about the <laughs> night? Like, it's so embarrassing talking about night grand finals, don't you reckon? Like about Little League. Yeah, I mean, look, we don't have a lot to hang our hat on at St Kilda, so don't take away our Wizard Cup. <laughs> wizard Cup, bless you, Harry. <laughs> now, I do wonder what it's like. I mean, uh, you know, a good friend of ours, Michael Chamberlain, you know, I've known Michael since I was 10 years old, and so our footy experiences our entire lifetime could not be more divergent. And Michael was not what I would call a gracious Hawks supporter, like even as a 10-year-old. Like, he just had a strut about him. But... Having said that, he, I, that, that thing of people hating Hawthorne, I don't know that anyone genuinely hates Hawthorne or Hawthorne supporters. What we hate is your success. It's kind of like you can't hate, you know, like the Rolling Stones. You cannot be a fan of the Rolling Stones. You think they've been around for too long. They've had it too good for too long. But ultimately, they're the Rolling Stones. You know what I mean? Well, that's true. But they're also the Rolling Stones... Um, and they're quite cool to look at. I think the thing that levels it all out is our poos and wheeze factor. And it's yeah. immature to talk about it. But um, as a woman growing, you know, as a girl growing up and, and now as a woman, really there is nothing that looks good with the jumper. So you just have to wear the jumper and you have to own it. So there's a certain amount mm. of embarrassment and pride with that. Um, ironically, mm. I'm married to a Carlton supporter and he doesn't, he doesn't level that... Um, you know, you've had so much success stuff at me because he still thinks Carlton's the more successful. And I'm like, well, but not in my lifetime. Mm. So it really doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. And so it's really interesting that everywhere I go, I, I can see that. And I can see that Chambo would have been quite an arrogant child. Um, mm. <laughs> but um, I think I just He was like Ricky friend. Schroeder and Silver Spoons. I tell you that. I tell you what. <laughs> like Ricky Schroeder and Silver Spoon. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am not that kind of supporter. I'm a hold your breath and hope for the best. And actually well, fuck. Don't... I mean, you must have been holding, holding your breath for the last 40 years. I have. Because it's been, you've been doing an amazing job. Yeah, I actually have. And there's been a few, like the, the bad times for me have hit, have hit pretty hard, but there have been about people moving to different clubs. I mean, I've still not really recovered from Sam Mitchell going to West Coast. Well, I guess that's interesting because I was talking to to Matt Stewart. Um, he's a St Kilda supporter. And we were both like wondering, what is it that brings a Hawthorne supporter back every year? Like, I mean, we, at, you know, we St Kilda supporters say, we just want to see one, just one. It's been for me 43 years of nothing. Just give me one, I'll be done. But I guess you guys, the premierships are, you know, you've seen enough. So now you start like investing, you find story, other storylines to invest in things that to kind of bring you back. And because you need that heartache, don't you? You need that kind of, if it's, if it, if you're just playing the Washington generals every week, it's not exciting after a while. Well, it's true. And you know, it's, it's going to make people hate me even more, but I'm a Patriots fan in, in American oh football. They're, they're just another version of the Hawks really. But um, storytelling, I think is essential to sport. And I think it's been yes. really essential to um, Clarko's, kind of command of his team. And I think it was almost the same for John Kennedy Sr. And so I think that there's been a synergy throughout our club's history to have these big stories. And, and I know all clubs do have them, but um, because we haven't had as much downtime, you know, in your lifetime and in my lifetime, um, it has been really interesting. What's got me going back to the football has been to see how they, like how they're going to play the next chess moves. And there's mm. times that it's felt, really vulgar 
the the way in which you know whether it's the Trent Crow deal or whether it's getting rid of Sam Mitchell or getting rid of Jordan Lewis and um, mm. Hodgie being in another dump up things like that have felt quite crude you know because I don't know if you've read that bit that Jerry Seinfeld does when he's talking about all we actually do is support the clothes we go to sporting <laughs> we go to sporting yeah. events and you're just really cheering for one set of clothes against the other set of clothes because all the players switch and so it comes down to the jumper and then I guess for me the jumper is my family. And so mm. while Hawthorne is the family club, it's quintessentially the story of my family. It's kept my family together. It's bonded me with my sisters and it's what we do together. And it's now ultimately, you know, what we do for work. So um, it's connected me with community and with family. And I think that's the thing that keeps me going back. And Hawthorne's always been really good at tapping into that. My wife is from Scotland and arrived in Australia with no interest in any kind of organised sport at all. And so I think like on our first or second date, she said, if you insist on watching football in our relationship, we're going to have to get a place with a cupboard under the stairs and you can take a black and white TV and turn the sound down. And she had no appreciation of like what you just talked about, the history or the story, because she just saw it as, you know, guys just running around chasing a ball. There's nothing beyond that for her. And so for me to then take her down that path of, well, my entire family is St Kilda, you know, my earliest memories of going to the football with my dad, you know, then my older brothers and sisters taking me to the football and all those kind of memories that you tie in. And look, it is completely arbitrary, you know, and meaningless in a way, but we imbue it with meaning, you know, and I think that you can find a lot of beauty. And to the point now where, you know, she has sort of, she keeps track sort of peripherally and she will find... Like, she used to love Fraser Gehrig. When I got her to start watching games, she was like, that, the ogre. <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> he seems so enigmatic. And I was like, yes, you know. And then she started finding this quite instinctive way through the other teams in the AFL. And she was very accurate in her assessment of teams' cultures. Like, you know, she liked Richmond because they seemed kind of like rock and roll, you know, the scraggly long hair and stuff. But then she saw the Hawks and she's like, oh, my God, prefects. They're a team of prefects. <laughs> To tell Michael Chamberlain that one, he would have totally agreed. It's so funny. Well, as a a prefect himself. (laughs) Um, I went and saw The Dry um, last night, which has Eric Banner in it. And the whole time I'm thinking, he goes for St Kilda, that guy. (laughs) He's so so attached to who he is. And then I was thinking, Hawthorne really doesn't have any, because we've been successful, I think. I don't know if that's Mm. the reason, but we haven't had any like, it's not cool to get a famous person to wear a Hawthorne jumper. And then I was like, I think there's been two. There were some members of One Direction and mm. Madonna's adopted Malawi son, David Banda, once wore a Hawthorne jumper. <laughs> that's all I had. And I was like, wow, that's we're really missing a big piece of the, of the AFL Bob, celebrity didn't Bob history Hawk here. pull on a Hawthorne jumper or Paul Keating? I, I've got the feeling like an Australian Prime Minister might have, might have done a publicity stunt with the Hawks jumper. Well, oh, you think of Carl Stefanovic? I feel like he wore one once. <laughs> I'm not no. going to count that. I have never thought that. Ever... It's always annoyed me that, um, you know, that Tom Hawkins didn't play for Hawthorne for m- oh, yeah. multiple reasons. But, I mean, good footy name. <laughs> and so when, uh, so you, you said it's a, a family thing. So you're both your parents or you're just your dad, Barrett Fellahorn? No, three generations, both sides, mum and dad. Wow. Yeah, wow. so it's really strong. And, um, and in fact, they lived around the area of Glen Ferry and they used to walk to... Glenfrey Oval um, to go and watch the Hawks when they really played actual games there. 
And then um, I went to school not too far from there and I used to wander down after school and watch them train when I was, you know, just a just a kid. Um, and I've always spent a lot of time around Glen Ferry Oval. And then, uh, and, my, and then on my husband's side, his whole family as well is three generations Hawthorne. He's the only one who decided to go for oh. Carlton. So my daughters are Hawthorne supporters and um, we get stopped and asked about that a lot about why you know why that's the case but it's just it's comes through the uh comes through the maternal line on all sides are you ever baffled by families where every sibling picks a different team yeah i i find it fascinating i actually know of a family who have moved around a lot for work and their parents actually encouraged it so if they they had a child in geelong they made that child go for geelong and then they moved to sydney and one of those kids goes for sydney and another one goes for adelaide and i'm like what are you doing? This yeah. is ridiculous. This is it's, the ben- ridiculous. it's the Benetton of AFL teams. <laughs> like just pick it one is. from each. I don't know how you would love those children as much. <laughs> and then can I just say for people listening, uh, just describe where you are right now. <laughs> Sitting in my car with my laptop and a cup of instant coffee because it's um, I'm on holidays and I'm recording this at my parents' house. But as my elderly parents, as I went to click on the on the link to talk to you, Charlie, Dad decided to watch a 400-year-old rerun of Spicks and Specs at the <laughs> up to 11. And um, I eye-rolled, grabbed the laptop and came and sat in my car and I feel like I'm 16 again. I mean, the sound quality is amazing, but I, I do have run one request. Could you please turn on the interior light because it looks like you're in witness protection. I'm, you're just slowly disappearing into the... Ah, there, thank you. Much better. <laughs> I All I could see was my teeth and my eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, but the thing was, it was just gradually getting darker as the sun went down. And I think it was like, oh, I feel like I'm entering some kind of like psychedelic trip right now listening to you talk about Hawthorne. <laughs> it's pretty strange. It looks like I should be in a Queen film clip right now. I'm just a face. Yeah. <laughs> Pure mully grubs. <laughs> so when you were a kid and you're going down to watch training and stuff, was there a player who like first captured your imagination, Some that, one that you, was, you were drawn to more than the others? Well, my first jumper had number three on the back, which was for Lee Matthews. Very and, cool. um, you know, Lee Matthews was actually a really important person in my life because you know how uh, when you're a kid you believe that there's good people and bad people and you can't understand grey area and that's, how I felt until Neville Bruns and Lee Matthews had their little dance. And, um, and I've, and I really struggled with it as a kid and I still struggle with it as an adult. I struggle with a lot of things that Lee Matthews says um, as an adult. Uh, he's not a massive fan of, uh, of woke culture or uh, women's football. And, and he was my first real hero and his number was on the back of my jumper and he was just such a giant of the game. And so he was someone that I thought, I actually kind of grew up believing I was related to him because he was such an important person in our, you know how some families have pictures yeah. of Elvis? We yeah. were kind of the Lee Matthews um, kind of fan base um, at our place. But then through my teenage years, it became completely obsessed and lots of people roll their eyes, but with Chris Langford. And I've always oh, loved Defenders. Yeah, yeah right. It could have had something to do with the six pack and the jaw, which yeah. um, first amazing square jaw. He looks amazing like American jaw. Dad, you know the cartoon American Dad. He's got the same kind of like angular jaw like that. I remember Chris Langford. There was some quirk about him that they'd always publish in like the back of the Sun, 
that he always in insisted on having a Kit Kat after the game. That was like his little, you know, sugar hit after a game. And I don't know why, but it stuck with me that I need to get a Kit Kat. If I want to play good footy, you got to eat a Kit Kat. Chris Langford said so. <laughs> there was a great story about him once. I've probably cut it out and stuck it in some kind of scrapbook. Um, but that he went in to have surgery. I'm going to say it was on a shoulder or a knee or something. And they were about to, they anaesthetised him and then they were about to slice and dice and do what they had to do. And he goes, you know, I can still feel that. <laughs> <laughs> like he needed a vat of anaesthetic because he was just such a massive unit. And yeah. so they anaesthetised him and then he goes, no, I'm still here. I can still hear you. <laughs> they had to go back a third time. So I, I think what I liked about him in the end was he wasn't just a dumb, dumb footballer. He was a really smart mm. guy. He had a career outside of football. That's and, right. Didn't um, he negotiate some deal where the last two years he was living in Sydney and then he'd fly to the games or train on his own or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly right. He trained on his own. He was an architect and he was working for, you know, some big company and doing his thing. But also, you know, when Hawthorne almost merged with Melbourne, it was Chris Langford that ripped his jumper off, held it up above his head. Um, after we beat Melbourne in 1996 to say like, no, we've got to believe in, in this. We've got to believe in this jumper. And I remember those merger meetings and I felt like it was the end of the world. I mean, we, I just, I couldn't quite believe that we'd fallen so far. And they were talking about us merging with a team that um, just felt so alien to us. And there was, and everyone else was laughing about it and yeah. talking about, you know, would they be called the dorks mm. and all that kind of stuff. And mostly I just was like, I, I can't be, I can't go for the same team as those people at school who go for Melbourne because we're not like them. I just remember being quite judgmental. And then we all voted for it. And of course we voted and, and it didn't get through. And it was only about, I'm really close with my sisters, there's three of us. And I, recent, I found out about five years ago, one of my sisters voted for the merger. That is like shocking. That is, that is dynasty style. That's to, like that's like one of those art house films you go and see where it's a dinner party is ruined by a dark family secret. <laughs> it's your sister um, revealing she voted for the merger. It. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, that's normally a question I reserve the end of the, an episode as I ask people if their team were to fold. You know, would you continue following football? Do you think you'd pick another team or would you just become like a neutral observer? And so you were actually quite close to that. And it was not long after Fitzroy's merger, which let's be honest, was more of an absorption. Mm. Uh, so you must have been running that scenario in your head of like, do I keep following football? And, and what was the answer? Well, yes. I, I don't think I ever would have been able to leave football. It really has been the, um, it's been the focal point of every, the end of every week for as long as I can remember. And in fact, during COVID, you know, they, they played whatever it was, 100 million games in a row. Yeah. And there were just games football. on every night. And, and I thought that I would love that, but I actually didn't love it because I had nothing to look forward to because it was always what marks, you know, it's kind of the, the ceremony of it. So I think I would have definitely still followed football. I probably would have followed whatever team Hawthorne was rolled into. Um, right. And the reason why I know that is because Hawthorne is yet to have an AFLW licence. And so I have, over the last five years, just followed women's football and I can love, I love other teams. And this is, I thought I was a monogamous kind of a girl, but turns out I'll just throw it around. <laughs> I love, I really love Carlton. 
I really love St Kilda. Um, I love Frio, I love West Coast. I never thought I'd say these these things. And I know that it will all change when Hawthorne finally has a license. But but for now, um, I would lie down in traffic for those for the Carlton AFLW team. <laughs> it's embarrassing to even admit. Now that's amazing because what you've done there is you've done the reverse into a competition to what most people do. Because I only started taking an interest once St Kilda had a team because something didn't feel right about cheering on Carlton. Don't know, don't care who, who's wearing the jumper. I just can't do it. But then when last year I started following AFLW because it's like, okay, maybe I'm, I'm dumb. I need a storyline I can follow. And it's like, okay. And the St Kilda Digital de- Department did an amazing job of introducing all the girls and, you know, really featuring them. And it was actually like, it was, a, it was a really good entry, but you went the other way, which is like, I'm going to learn about all these teams and all these players. So who were the first women players that really caught your attention? Darcy Vessio, for sure. Of course. Um, I was following... So I think the reason is, Charlie, is that I've spent my whole life obsessing over a game that I wasn't encouraged to play and I couldn't mm-hmm. see myself doing it. And I know that there's a lot of, if you can't see it, you can't see it talk now. But, you know, even 10 years ago, if someone had said to me there will be an elite women's footy competition, I wouldn't have believed them. I really didn't see it. I didn't see it as being part of the journey that I've had with footy. And Mm. I felt it was really separate. And even my sister said, you know, they can start AFLW. I will never love it as much as I love AFLM, which is what we call the men's competition because equality. And I now, I live and breathe it. And so... I'm passionate about all the players because so many of them have had to do, you know, whatever, what Chris Langford did seems so extraordinary back in the day. These women do it and then they go and work at a hospital for 12-hour shifts and then they still turn up to training and they only have one kit and they have to wash it Mm. overnight and they don't get paid. And, you know, half of them don't, you know, if they didn't have health insurance, they had to kind of work it out themselves and they've been told that they can't play. They've been um, given the worst grounds, terrible coaches, you know, only it was only like three years ago they started making women's jumpers that actually were made for women's bodies. We've been wearing <laughs> men's boots, men's shorts, men's jumpers our whole lives. And so it just opened the whole world up to me. And there was the storytelling is just unbelievable. I mean, you've obviously tapped in with St Kilda, but the storytelling around the way that these women found football and how it either mm. saved them or, or they saved it or they, you know, they've, forge relationships and friendships through footy that that are just so extraordinary it's all part of football's story and now it's kind of out on display for us and I'm I'm so invigorated by it yeah I love the idea too of like athletes established athletes in other codes and sports going you know what I'm going to give it a crack like I know that was a criticism of AFLW that I always thought was bizarre I'm like this is awesome. Like you're actually sort of seeing like athletes from other sports coming in and adopting our game at this like accelerated pace. Like I think if you divorce it from what the men's competition is, like you can view it like entirely for its own merits. And that was one thing that I'm like, this is like, this is something to be more impressed by the fact that someone is like completely changing codes or sports or learning something completely new and playing at an elite level. Totally. It's like, if you have a $5 note, that's great. But if you have $5 in $1 coins, you can actually do a whole lot of different things. You know, like you can actually get yourself a trolley 
you can stick it through the slot machine. You can. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not suggesting this is a terrible analogy, but they're both of value, and they're both from the same family, but they do different things. You know. Yes. Yeah. You can. <laughs> you can get... share. You can share five one dollar coins with your friends. You can make a wish with one, like a note. That's great. I'll take the five. I'll take the five gold coins thing. Um, well, we should get back to the Hawks at some point. Uh, so tell me, was there a, is there a player beyond lethal that has, if you had to put one above all the others, it is like your all-time favourite? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sam Mitchell, which is a really unlikable mm. option. How do, you oh, feel no. about, how do you feel about Sam Mitchell? The same way I feel about Hawthorne as a club, which is like, I can't fault him. Like he's a success machine, you know, he's so driven and, you know, it's actually not dissimilar to Lethal in terms of you look at his physical capabilities, yeah. you know, and this is just pure, like, intelligence, hard work, grit, determination, a little bit of, like, mongrel. But I think, you know, if you don't have, like, you know, Wayne Carey's build or athleticism, then you need to find other advantages. Mm. Now, I like Sam Mitchell. He, and again, it's that St Kilda Hawthorne truce. Like, we've never really – we don't have a history of, like, ugly games or fights or, you know what I mean? Like – I think he's never never did anything. I never punched Lenny Hayes in the guts or anything. So he gets a pass. <laughs> um, I think that without this being a therapy session, I think that I've just happened upon something that's really interesting. I am a short-legged person. Like my <laughs> upper body is at least one and a half of my legs. And I'm pretty sure yep. that's the same ratio that Lee and Sam Mitchell are rocking. And maybe that's what's drawn me to these short-legged people. Uh, Sam Mitchell's story is extraordinary, which is that, you know, he was such an amazing player. He never got drafted. He couldn't get a look in at any club, wrote letters to every single club and said, can I come and try out? They said no. Eventually he got on the, on the list at Hawthorne and he was playing in the twos and he was playing at Box Hill. He played out of his skin and people just couldn't believe what they were watching. You know, you talk to people Mm. who were commentating back then or at those games back then, they were saying, we'd never seen anything like it, basically, at at Box Hill. And he just played his way into the firsts. And then he plays his way into being a captain, a premiership Mm. captain. And then, of course, that's how he manages to swindle a Brownlow. Like, you know, (laughs) he just keeps going. You know, like, it's a pretty extraordinary story. And... I think the reason why I loved watching him play so much is because I'm the kind of supporter that holds my breath. When I would see him in the middle of the ground and he'd pull people in where that was, you know, the ruck and a couple of the mids. And of course he had some pretty amazing people he was playing alongside of, but he would formulate a plan. They would execute the plan and he was the extractor. You know, I never, I don't know how this sleight of hand with him that even watching Mm. replays, I can't see how he did what he did. And it's a little mm. bit the same with Cyril. We would call it magic with Cyril. With with Sam, I think it's just this tenacious, hardworking, I don't even know it's grit, but it's also just he spent so much time ball in hand. I think that he just has a relationship with um, with the field, with the players. And, and that midfield, you know, through through the three-peat was pretty extraordinary. I'm not going to bang on about it because I can see you rolling your eyes. But No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> reaching for my tequila. Go on, tell me about your, your three-peat. Just that. They so they and this is what good teams can do. Richmond do it now too. That they they know where each other are. They always know where each other are. They can feel it. It's a sixth yeah. sense kind of thing. And I felt like, you know, when Sam was on, um, 
and you know he could he was a bit of a hot mess at times and didn't like necessarily mm. the job he was given to do but when he was on he could just he could just turn the ball in ways that I I hadn't it was almost basketball you know he reminded me a lot of Greg Williams diesel yeah like that same same frame high possession smart user like you know is uh, good on the left and the right handball machine and it's also like their personalities were quite similar, at least, you know, from the, the press that I would see. Like they both have that kind of ice in their veins, ultra competitive, don't suffer fools gladly. Mm. You know, and I think that that's, again, it's like that we're saying, if you don't have the natural attrib attributes, you've got to kind of be strong of mind. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there must be some Geelong fans who would hate Sam Mitchell. Yeah, like, and probably some anyone who fans too, I reckon. Yeah, Sydney I know, I know a lot of Swan supporters because they live in Sydney and they can't stand Hawthorne. Mm. And I think that's uh, – I always think that's like you beat them in 2012. Like, again, not to stop – sorry sorry to keep inserting myself <laughs> into the narrative. <laughs> but if the Saints were to have beaten Hawthorne in a grand final, I would be like, great. You know, <laughs> this is a happy memory. But Swans fans, I don't know. And I they guess got Buddy. The Are they cross about Buddy? Are they cross that they didn't get their money's worth? No, I think – no, no. Everyone loves Buddy. And they did get their money's worth, I think. Don't you reckon? Yeah, I'd like to say I'd like to see him playing so much more, like so much more game time. I think, but every time Buddy plays, it's just exciting. I I will never yeah. not support Buddy. Um, I think that yeah, I don't think people love Sam Mitchell because he's he's got that he's kind of got that um prickly personality, and that's not going anywhere, mm. and it will make him the perfect coach. I think. Yeah, well, that would seem to be like anointed from like way early in his playing career. People would talk about this guy going on to be a coach why is that like what is what is the is it is it his leadership is it just the way <laughs> how do people know he'll be a good coach yeah you know, I don't think it's his leadership I think it's the way that he actually you know he was he's not one of the guys I think even when he was playing and they were winning he's not one of the guys and I think you do need to have that distance if you're going to be a good coach because you can't be one of the guys because you have to boss them around but the other thing I don't know like Bevo seems to be one <gasps> of the boys like Bevo rides his skateboard you know hey dude's What's like, Facebooking? Totally, <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah, just totally. left and right. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, but I, I think that served them well momentarily. But um, I think, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're an actor, so you know these guys. You know the people who, when they're on stage with you, they mouth the other actor's yeah, words. Yeah, your, your lines, yeah. That's Sam Mitchell. He knows right. what every other person is meant to be doing at all times. If you mm. were to, if you were Stewie Jew or um, David Hale, and you're standing next to him and you're trying to, you know, flex and talk about how well you played on a certain day, Sam Mitchell remembers every single stat of every single player that he ever played with. He knows everything that went on on the field. Like he he will do these ones. He will pick you up on every every ball, every free kick, where the ball was, what the time was. He just has that brain. And I Are think, you saying and I he's, a, he's, a, he's a savant? He's a, yeah, I, I was going to say nerd. He's a savant, he's a football <laughs> savant. And I actually think that's going to make him a great coach. And he's yeah. cheeky and he's naughty, but I also wouldn't want to cross him. Like I feel like he, yeah. he garners respect because he's such a hard worker and I think that's what Bucks has. But don't you think there is an issue uh, when you're a player who – just wrung every bit of like talent out of your body and did used everything to your advantage. Like when you get to a to, to being a coach, 
I wonder if he would look at like a group of young men and just not understand why they don't have the same desire to win. Like how does he, because if he is a savant or if this is something that he's honed for, you know, 30 years, you know, this kind of laser-like focus, I wonder if it's easy for you to instill that in other people. You know what I mean? Like maybe he was just born that way. We don't know. And this is the issue with coaching is that we only ever select from the same pool. We go, oh, it's going to be safe for us to pick a former player. So you know what? Maybe someone who was a choreographer in the Australian Ballet would be a better coach, but we're never mm. going to know that because they only ever go for the safe option. You know, Clarko was probably the least safe option that Hawthorne's ever gone with because he didn't play for Hawthorne and he hadn't, you know, had the career that of the other people that were going for the job at that time. So he was the least safe option. And when that's the least safe option, a former teacher who has played, then, you know, you're not, you're not talking apples and oranges. So yeah. I think he's been around footy enough, like whether or not he can garner the trust of, of the players and, and the young, and the young blokes, I, I, I don't know how that all works, but you know, yeah. he, but I think a far, he's I, a father of, he's got a son, so he's going to have to be tapped yeah. in. I guess so. It's, I guess it's more like, you know, I used to wonder about Nick Revolt. Like, would he be frustrated by the fact that other players at the club won't run five kilometres before a game, you know, the way he would do religiously? Because obviously that's just his work ethic and that's his endurance and all that kind of stuff. And if you had to coach that into someone, well, that's a that's a completely unique quality. Like Sam Mitchell's football mouse and his understanding of the game might be unteachable. Yeah, it may well be. And I think, and I think again, that's that's the point with Barks. Bucks was always that guy. He was always the last mm. on the training track. He was always the hardest worker. And, you know, I think he's had he's had some kind of epiphany or wake-up call or he's just read love Renee new, Brown. I love you new know, age, like, Bucks. I love it. Yeah, totally. You know, the power like, of now. He's done. Yeah, that's right. He's, like, tapped into some podcasts and grown a beard. And, <laughs> you know, he's a completely different Zen guy now. So, um, you know, that'll be <laughs> Sam's journey. But goodness me, who would want the pressure of being a coach in the first couple of years? Like I would say that the, that the um, personality type of someone like Rats, right? I would say mm. that is the kind of person that you want to have as a coach. I wouldn't necessarily look at Fags and go, oh, Fags is mm. exactly what you want. But he's having an enormous amount of success. And I and actually think the Lions were really good last year. Yeah, uh, but it, it, it's obviously it, it's the Fags may work at Brisbane because of the makeup of that list. It may not have worked at another club, but it's really good administration to have gone through that interview process and say these are what we think we're lacking with. This is the kind of communication we think we need because I was like you with Chris Fag, and I'm like, what? Whose grandfather is this? Why are they letting him onto the ground? You know, Will and I joke that he's like the Gil Gunderson of the AFL. That you know, he's always getting his shirt caught and he's flying. He's you know, so there's like a possum in his briefcase, all this kind of I stuff. I know. And then when he tore his hamstring off the bone when he was doing the water slide, <laughs> and you're like, oh, Dad. Oh, Dad, but, just wear a normal costume. But I could imagine him being enormously, like, appealing to a young man who need a father figure, you know, like, because he sort of has that inbuilt paternal quality and that kind of lovable goofiness. It's a bit like rats, I guess, is there, there's kind of an approachable nature to them. They're not like, bucks who you'd be kind of scared to talk to because he's mm. such an elite athlete and such an articulate speaker and you know obviously a real thinker but it with chris fagan it's just like oh yeah i i feel like they're quite a young list 
and they've basically got dad. Dad's coaching him. Like, you know, his dad why, coach. And, and, you know, the respect thing is huge with coaches, which is why I think Sam will be great because he has no real digital footprint. He's not one of those guys that's been at the Ports of Polo. You can't track his, you know, social history. He's been married forever, all that kind of stuff. And I do wonder, and we don't need to get into it, but, you know, how are Richmond going to respond after what's happened in the off-season with Damien Hardwick? Because, you know, that's the kind of story that, really we've seen we've seen a lot it with players mm. but you don't see it with co- with successful coaches that often and you know it looks like there might be some pulling at the seams there between the playing um group and the and the coach and i, mm. I think it's a real i think it's a he's in a real he's put himself in a bit of a bind there yeah it's the hardest job in the world when you think about you know what you're asked to do not only just like on game day but it's just the relationship managing like I heard stories about when rats went to Morab and I went down to watch training at the start of last year and the thing that people kept saying is that rats talks to everyone not just the playing list but the you know the the women who prepare the lunches the support staff the people in the merch shop like he makes a point of going and not micromanaging but just making everyone feel included and to do that, like think about all the different kind of notes you've got to hit to talking to different people. Like that takes a tremendous amount of skill to be able to communicate with all those different departments and put on all those different hats and not like alienate anyone. Oh, it's extraordinary. And I see that with Clarko. He's definitely got influence in every single level of the club. It's interesting though, because, you know, the tale is told that Alan Jeans was not that guy. He had Alan mm. Jeans was, you know, arguably a more successful, you know, as successful coach. Um, mm. And he had a handful of players that he looked after and that he was a father figure to. And there was players that went in and out of that club that served the club for years that he didn't even look at. He gave, didn't give him the time of day that if you weren't, if you weren't in his top five, you really felt it. So, and maybe it's a different time and definitely a different era for, you know, for masculinity and for the way that that was being portrayed. But, um, you know, we're talking about success on the footy field. I mean, maybe the game's changed so much that it's irrelevant. Mm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Because I don't think Mick Malthouse has a coaching style that's kind of applicable now, but it, it wasn't that long ago when it was. Yeah, I'm amazed by how quickly trends in football change and coaching is definitely one of those. Like I, That's why I thought when the Suns got Rodney Ede, I'm like, oh, that feels like not way out of date, but maybe four years too mm. late. And that's nothing against Rocket, but I just think the game has changed. And, you know, that thing of being the communicator is so important now. And there's such a focus on mental health and, you know, being able to kind of, it's not just about cracking the whip, you know, making guys run laps, you know, <laughs> like you've got to be sensitive to individual needs and and that's such a tightrope. I think that that generation just gone and I, you know, I'm at the tail end of that generation. It's, it's different. Like, you know, someone who's younger, who has come up, you know, with a, a different set of values or educated differently is going to relate to young men and young women better. You know, I heard something the other day that was shocking, but of course not unexpected. That um, coaches really struggle these days speaking to the new recruits and you know, the, and the first and second year players because their attention span is about five minutes. It's as long right. as an Insta story or as long as a TikTok or whatever, and then after that, you got nothing. And I was that's just like, why Bevo oh rides his skateboard <laughs> into the team meetings, you know, with his mullet. 
And he's like, hey, dudes, check out my latest TikTok. And then he does a little dance. Because Bevo knows how to talk to the new recruits. I hate, I hate seeing coaches doing TikToks. It really annoys me. It oh, really you're one of those people. Me. I'm a purist. I'm like, get off socials. <laughs> you know, you... Um, Graham Arthur recently died and he was mm. uh, captain of the, you know, Hawthorne in the 60s. And um, they all called him Mort. And I was thinking, why do they call him Mort? Is it like a Morty? <laughs> I don't know, some joke from back in the day or whatever. And I actually looked it up. And it was taken from Mort de Arthur, which is basically a 15th century Middle English kind of story what? about the tales of King Arthur. And I'm like, God, footballers have changed. <laughs> now we just what? call this guy Big Nuts. <laughs> totally. totally. How different is that to Diesel or the rat? That's that's amazing. I know it's hilarious, uh, but we need to maybe bring back more fifteenth-century Middle English prose into the into the nickname giving. Well, I think that actually is a, is a good lead into my next question, which is: I'm always fascinated by uh, a club's perceived culture. You know, I don't even know if I believe in it. Like, it's something that I I feel like is brought up a lot to damn St Kilda. We've all got we've always had a terrible culture. People throw that in our face all the time, but Hawthorne clearly have an excellent culture. Like just hearing you talk before about like Alan Jeans and then my mind started wandering and thinking about all the success that Alan Jeans had and that list and the flags you won. And then it happened 20 years later with, you know, Alistair Clarkson. And so there has to be some kind of transference of culture between those two kind of generations. I know you had like, you know, a 15-year period in the middle where things were maybe a bit slow, but what is the Hawthorne culture from your perspective? Well, it's really interesting um, that you bring up. So, when you know, when Alan Jeans um, was coaching and then he got sick and then so back-to-back -back actually we were coached by Alan Joyce. Joyce. And then, yeah. you know, the same thing repeated itself when Brendan Bolton mm. had to step in and coach for Clarko um, when he got Gillenbare. And I always think about that. I'm like, how does that happen? How does a culture allow for this to be such a seamless transition of power of something that's yeah. like only one person in the world can do? Um, and also, does culture exist across time in the same in the same way, or does it change? Because, but I know that my experience and my interface and my kind of intersection with Hawthorne has always felt the same to me. Mm. And now that I I'm the number one ticket holder at the club, I feel incredibly. Um, Should I have been addressing you as Your Majesty throughout this Matt, entire interview? Matt, Madam number one. Madam number something. one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can have you, Kamala Harris. <laughs> um, what is the number one ticket holder, though, Charlie? I like to say it's kind of like being a Moomba monarch. It's a big, <laughs> it, which I'm fine with. For anyone who knows well, what Moomba is, um, I'm, just, I'm just a lowly ambassador, so I'm, I'm essentially the court jester to your Moomba king. Yes, you are. That's correct. <laughs> Go and get me my slippers. Um, so, look, I think the cult. I think culture is. I think it's bullshit, and I think, yeah. and I, and the reason why I think it's bullshit is because I don't know what the shin bonus spirit really is, and we talk about it so much, but I couldn't identify one characteristic of it. Um, and that's obviously a North Melbourne thing. And I'm sure North Melbourne people would have a, a multitude of answers for what that is. But for Hawthorne, I think they stick to things like the family club. And I believe that and I feel that. But tell me, tell me a club that's not. Like Richmond's got 100,000 members. They've got a lot of families in there. So, uh, yeah. you know, there's a well, lot the of ways unsocial, that you can dress it The unsocial up, right? hawks. What? I mean, you know, that was the, the, the unsocial hawks. 
totally. I mean, that's kind of a, and I feel well. I feel like those two generations, though, you know, those two periods, the Jeans and and um, uh, uh, Clarko's era, they're very similar. Like in terms of like how you stack up with stars and you know dominant forwards and stuff, they were very kind of similar. So I, I feel like the culture of Hawthorne has just been um, just excellence. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's just it's just simple like. You know, like Carlton and Essendon and those big Melbourne clubs all have kind of like expectations of, you know, success and being out of finals is unacceptable. Although I think Carlton have finally got the message. Like I think 20 years of, you know, sporadic finals appearances has finally been beaten out of them any kind of strut. I kind um, of, I would love to do like a word association game where I go like Carlton and you go, rotting the system. <laughs> <laughs> drug scandal like yeah. i know that you go st kilda oh bad culture but that's mostly just because of that nightclub that you had and you know if that nightclub didn't exist at moravan mm. i feel like the story would be different and look i know that there's been some hiccups along the way but the thing that i and coming back to women's footy is that you know through women's footy and through kind of um pride games and things like that now for me i look at st kilda and i go a club of acceptance that's in the heartland mm. of their community um, that believes strongly in a diverse um, culture around football and and supportership and that they see value in that. And I think that's something really to aspire to. And look, so, you know, when I look at Hawthorne, I go, oh, sometimes I think it might look a little bit elitist and a little bit mm. conservative. And, and they're not traits that I necessarily want to attribute to myself, but... What I will say is that they have a lot of people from a lot of diverse um, thoughts and that have, you know, diverse backgrounds at Hawthorne through all of the board and through, you know, all of, you know, all of the levels. And because of that, you can't really pin one thing. What you can say is that we have robust conversations and we yeah. do demand excellence. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, just all the Hawthorne supporters I'm friends with, um, they there is this kind of... Like, I guess because you have so many flags, like when you have a lull, you know, when you go through your mid-2000s period, like, it's kind of like a chance for you guys to just catch your breath, you know, and go back and watch a few grand final replays because you never really bottom out. Like, it's never... I guess the merger was probably the, the, the lowest point in the last, like, 30 years. But, you know, when um, we had... A, a Mike Howe was our American producer for Two Guys, One Cup for a number of years. And when he started, he's like, well, I, I, I guess I better barrack for a side and so we just gave him our rough thumbnail sketches of the cultures of each club and then he did he did a bit of research and he came back and he said well I think I've picked my club it's going to be Hawthorne because I like teams that are just kind of they're either excellent or they're grinders but they never drop away like you don't ever they're never out of the equation and I think that that's like you know my impression of, of, of Hawthorne and especially from the supporters is like you don't get too down in the dumps like things like St Kilda supporters are like are, are just pessimistic. Oh. The season is doomed, you know. We make the grand final, we're doomed, we're doomed. Whereas Hawthorne are like, well, on average we get one every three years, so let's just bide our time. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to complain when you're talking to a St Kilda supporter. But the other yep. thing is like it does feel like um, they're always working towards something. The club has really great um, communication about what they're doing. So I feel like you always think, oh, we're a chance or – you know, where, mm. you know, it's not like Clark over starts the year and says, we're definitely not going to be in the grand final. Like no one says that mm. first five rounds, everyone says we've got our hopes pinning, you know, pinned on September or October or November if it's COVID. Um, and I think, so 
I, I agree that I don't ever feel like that. But then I think to stories like Richie Vandenberg, who was the captain of the club for so many years and then finished in 2007. Mm. And then 2008, they went at grand final. And I'm like, oh yeah. my God, that must break his goddamn heart. Like how <laughs> well, much, he must just roll over in bed at night and go, am I missing a limb? What happened? What just happened? Tell me it was a nightmare. You know, well, so St. Kil- I feel like St Kilda waited until Rob Harvey retired before we decided to make a grand final. <laughs> he retired in two thousand and eight, and then next year we lose two games yeah. for the year. And same, you know, Bob Murphy, like an injury, and mm. then you're not there on that, or well, you're there, but you know, it's it's got a, a little asterisk or a big asterisk in your heart. And mm. football's full of those stories. So you know, as a supporter, I think we've been. We've been so lucky. I would never, ever complain about what I've been able to see. It did set me up in this belief system. I was like one of Sam Mitchell's kids. You know how they all thought, oh, well, we go to the parade, every, the grand final parade every yeah. year. Because <laughs> I went to grand finals. Like not only were we in them, but I was able to go to every grand final throughout primary school. And sure, we lost some, but we won more. And mm. you know, there's boys that I've run in, oh men they're men now they're like you know 45 year old men i run into them i go like oh yeah you're always in your hawthorne jumper and we hated you and i'm like wow that still <laughs> runs deep but i forget it because it's not like it's not like oh well, well you had a good run in the 80s and then you went to sleep for the next 30 years we didn't do that so i can't quite believe my luck at seeing it and my only regrets are i wish i'd partied harder in 2015 why did i go home why did i ever go home 2008 2008 i I missed work work for about three days because i couldn't i couldn't speak i had no voice and then you have to pause so i can take a huge drink after you said, I wish I'd partied harder in 2015. <laughs> My God, I didn't think I hated Hawthorne supporters until that moment. Well, that was the moment. I'm so sorry, everyone. It's <laughs> no, amazing. I, I, I just, I just, it's, it, it's so bizarre to me. Like Will and I, before 2016, like, you know, we'd talk about barracking for woefully unsuccessful clubs. And we sort of like wondered does it say something about our personalities or does it inform our personalities in any way that we are dedicated to this painful experience every year? Like I always likened it to having, you know, my girlfriend cheat on me every year. Like every year she, every February she comes along, she says, baby, like I'm going to be, I'm going to be loyal to you this year. But then she goes off and does like half the league. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Like, why did you get my hopes up? But (laughs) I think it does. I think it says, I think, more than star sign, more than birth order, more than numerology. It set me up to believe that, you know, that, that okay, the so, world is a beautiful place. Oh, God, I can't imagine what that must be like I'm to be so just radiating you know, with positivity. I, I, I don't know if you know this weird fact about me, but I once won the showcase on The Price is Right, and that's not even oh, in my wow. top That's not even in my top ten things that have <laughs> happened in my life. That is some fortunate shit going down, right? Wow, so that's uh, that's an interesting discussion about like nature versus nurture. <laughs> like, because clearly, <laughs> if you nurture a child and just teach them that like every three years, you know, you're going to have a great year because your team's going to win a flag, that would open you up to all the kind of possibilities. I used to, I often think when I watch the Olympics or something, I'd be like, God damn it! If my mum had just taken me ice skating when I was five years old and supported me, I could have been doing that. And but so, are you so that's old what now being... that you think, oh, I reckon archery is the only one left for me. <laughs> Lawn bowls. 
<laughs> I went lawn bowling a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm still waiting to, for my natural athletic ability to kind of like birth itself. I, I still hold on to this fantasy that I will pick up a sport for the first time and just be amazing at it. And people will be like, this is the chosen one that the prophecy is foretold. You know, you know and it just had, happens to be. I actually had this thought today. I was working out. I was doing weights with my PT. And I, for some reason, I, in some things, I'm remarkably strong. And then like, like stupidly, like incredible Hulk strong, right? Like Chris Langford strong. Anyway, <laughs> anyway I'm, so I'm lifting, you know, 30 kilos with my jaw. And I was thinking, what are the, like, there should Sorry, be Sorry, is that, are you making a joke there or are you actually doing that? No, I'm making a jaw joke, which okay. now I, okay. I'm now having some regrets because it doesn't translate as well as I hoped it would. Um, but anyway, um, that, that I was like, there should be an app that does your body mass index and what you can bench and all that stuff and tells you what the perfect sport for you would be. And then you just oh, go yeah, into that and imagine getting that. Cause like, I mean, I don't know, could I make discus for the 2021? Olympics? So you said you've got your torso is longer than your legs. Is that what you said? Yeah. 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 Way yeah. I'm, a, I'm a bit the same. And I've thought that the sport for us would be like log tossing. Have you seen that? It's where you see those big, yeah. And they grab the log, they squat down and then they just stand up from the squat and they fling the log because it's all about like lower, (laughs) lower body power. And I think that because we're low to the ground, strong, low center of gravity, strong, we can just, that would be the sport for us. Maybe that's what we should do. I don't think it would be equestrian because I feel like we'd hit our head on a lot of trees. (laughs) (laughs) It's too high above the horse. It's just bouncing. And also, we're not rich enough to have horses. Um, I feel like this question is kind of moot, but is there one singular moment that is above all the other moments as a Hawthorne supporter? Oh, I'm, it's it's a real line ball. Anytime we beat Geelong is right up there. Mm. Um, I reckon it's I reckon it's the two thousand eight grand final, and the reason why is because you know. We've talked about it so much tonight that that there's always an expectation and that, you know, that Hawthorne can win. You know, we've gone back to back. I've seen a three-peat. That kind of stuff is amazing. But 2008 was one, a genie out of the bottle. We weren't meant to be there. We weren't meant to win it. We weren't that team yet. We And, you know, 2007 wasn't a great season for us, I don't think. Like, I, it, it has no place in my memory. 2008, mm. somehow just appeared out of it was a mirage and then Mm. we had a massive grand final hangover as I mean I clearly had one for about a week but but the team had one we didn't I think it all came it came at us too soon but what Mm. a lovely surprise and so to have it like I mean that's that's so Hawthorne too like to stumble into a premiership and just go oh someone's left this wonderful surprise oh it's a premiership great we weren't even expecting it yeah I also met my husband about three weeks before the 2008 grand final. And by the time Hawthorne won the grand final, we were kind of like, oh, this is it. We're together forever now. So it was, it's all pretty merged for me as 2008. The end of 2008 was pretty spectacular and, and full of surprises. I mean, in terms of grand finals, like there's so many to choose from. Is 2008 higher than 89? Oh, 89 broke my heart. I found that 
I felt sick. I still feel sick about 89. I don't feel good about it. I've watched it so many times. You know, people talk about it being the greatest grand final and I just can't see it. I know why they say it. It's so brutal. Oh, that's what I was just going to say. I find it stomach turning. That first quarter is hard to watch because the guys are all so big. They're almost like NFL players. They're so massive and Mm. running into each other at full speed. Like, I, it's funny, people often talk about wanting the game to go back to what it used to be. But And as much as I admire the 89 Grand Final, I do not think it holds a candle to what you see on the ground today in terms of like skill and excitement and all that kind of stuff. It's a, an amazing game if you're talking about like a heavyweight slugfest. Mm. But I think that, you know, there are, I've seen better games in the modern era. I agree. Like I always think, would Nat Fife have played well on in the 89 grand final? No. <laughs> Nat Fife would be on a stretcher in the first 15 seconds. Totally. And so, and I love watching Nat Fife play. So I go, no, I don't, I don't think it is 89. I think, um, I think actually, you know, there was, we played a grand final at Waverley against West Coast and we won. That's right. And that yeah. was 91. So that was 91. Was too old, too slow, too bloody good. I believe that was the uh, t-shirt that Michael Chamberlain wore to school the next day. <laughs> Oh my god! Um, I was sitting in the uh, West Coast cheer squad, so that oh. was, and I would have been. I reckon I was in year eight, and so that was that was a little challenging time, but we won. But that was fun and unexpected because there was the Batmobile. I mean, there's some big ticket items here, and it was at Waverley. So lucky the Batmobile's there because most people lost their cars after the game. <laughs> um, it was surreal. And, you know, this year people were talking about the grand final not being at the G for the first time ever. And I was thinking, how have people forgotten Waverley actually hosted a grand final? And so that was pretty spectacular to be there for that because it was such an anomaly. And mm. uh, there's even some record books that, you know, if you look it up, it still says it was played at the MCG because they clearly just print them and they just write the stats and, and it hasn't been corrected. It was actually played at Waverley. So I found that pretty amazing. But yeah, I think um, I think of all of them, 2008, pretty spectacular though. You know, there's moments in the, in the three-peat, some Sean Burgoyne, yeah. Stewie Jew, Cyril Rioli moments that mm. I watch over and over again. There's a Stewie Jew passage of play where he kicks two goals and he's instrumental in two yeah. others. I think it's like a four-minute window. I mean, yeah, he's amazing. It's phenomenal, right? Like, and it's also great to see he's got that country footballer build. You know what I mean? Like, he it looks like you're at the bush league watching a dude who kicks 170 goals a year for his like country team. He just has that kind of confidence and skill and body type. And his mum, I reckon, made an amendment to his jumper. So it would cover his guts because there's something that's happening with his jumper that I'm completely obsessed with. Really? Yeah. There's Ooh, also a moment in 2008. This is another great one to watch for train spotters. In 2008, Sam Mitchell's the skipper. And somehow, I don't know where he pulls them out of, but he pulls out palm cards to read this speech that he's written up on the dais. And my friends and I have talked it round and round. Where were the palm cards? Were they in his sock? Did he have them in his jocks? Did someone pass them to him? He had these little tiny, you know, when you used to do a debate, yeah. you cut out the piece of paper. Yeah. The Oxford <laughs> Dictionary defines premiership as... <laughs> exactly. Thanks to our opponents. Yeah. And <laughs> the second speaker from the negative team. <laughs> Sorry, Matthew Scarlett. 
so I reckon I reckon they'll brought out to him. I mean, there's no way a, an ultra professional like Sam Mitchell's running around with his thank yous in his sock. That's got to be a trainer's got them on the bench. I feel like it's one of those things that there probably needs to be a new AFL podcast just um to have you know I was going to say the like, mysteries of the farm cards th- that in Stewie Jew's jumper I reckon you could do like an eight part series true crime conspiracy a real podcast deep dive, a real deep dive on it going back to eighty nine you know how you mm. said it's brutal I actually can't watch Dipper in that game knowing oh. what happened it makes me feel sick because but for the grace of you know the footy gods he dies that day. Like, and that's not okay. That makes that game go from being like potentially the world's greatest grand final to being the very worst day that mm. AFL's ever had, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think that Dipper would will never die. <laughs> something <laughs> something like tells me that. Yeah, I don't know. He just that was just a different era. Like you hear about the injuries that I remember, I can't remember whose autobiography I was reading. Maybe it was Nick Revolt's, but where they were listing all their injuries as an 18 year old, you know, they hadn't even played like a professional game of football, but it was like two shoulder reconstructions, you know, arthroscope on the knee, broken finger, broken hands. I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is yeah. like a, this is seems like a crazy pursuit. Stop. Well, it's really interesting because I often get asked, you know, what's going to be the big issues of, um, a footy, you know, in, in going forward. And if you look to what's happening in America, it's got to be concussion. And there's so yeah. many class actions happening. And we know that people are now leaving their brain tissue for um, medical research. And, and we're seeing that CTE has got this, you know, it's, it's showing up in people who've played the game. And I think, you know, the game, it's possible the game's going to change forever. And games like 89 yeah. won't be revered that much longer because they can't be isn't it isn't it a bit like a sitcom that's kind of racist like you sort yeah. of like oh it was a different time like i think i agree and i i you know we don't want there to ever be a day where like you know the football world has to stop because someone dies on the field or even like if later on we're finding out that concussion is causing all these kind of post-career injuries or, or conditions but I also don't think that we, you know, the, the great thing about AFL is it changes all the time. I know people hate that. That's a real knock on the AFL. It's like you're always changing the rules. But I kind of like that the fundamentals stay the same. Like they haven't changed the scoring. You know, they haven't really changed how many players are on the field. It's more about how can we tinker with this to make it safer, to make it more appealing. Of course, like, you know, within reason. But I don't, I don't think there is anything heroic about you know what used to happen 15 years ago 20 years ago in the football I don't I don't romanticize that period I think it's something that we went through because we didn't know any better but I don't you know I'm not one of those people who's you know calling for old-fashioned football to return no and you know I would love to see a ruckman win the brown low and I really love that you know that they've changed the rules so that rucks can actually get their hands on the ball much more mm. and not just have to tap it away and that they can take possession and stuff. I think that that's really, I think that is actually genuinely really exciting because it just means that you're going to attract more tools to the game. You're going to lose less people mm. to basketball um, because they actually can get some stats. I mean, who really runs around their backyard just doing tap, tap downs as a child <laughs> and he taps down to someone else who gets all the glory and they win the grand final lately. You just don't see that do you in the backyard. No. So I think that I think those kind of rule changes have been 
have been fantastic. I do, I tire of them. I feel like I go like, oh, what are, are we doing that? Where's the goal square gone? And do, why do yeah. we have a goal square? Why do we have a 50 meter arc anymore? You know, all those kinds of things. They don't, they don't necessarily hold an important place in the game anymore. It's just that the ground would look weird without them. But at least the AFL is willing to trial something and then scrap it the next year if it doesn't work. You know what I mean? These changes that happen, don't worry. If you don't like it, give it 12 months. It'll probably yeah, change again. Wait you know, a minute. Just strap yourself the in. thing that does annoy me is I, I really get frustrated when, you know, say in a round there's been a couple of potential dubious calls about something and then they mm-hmm. focus, like they go, oh, the, the umpires are going to focus on this specifically this weekend. Oh, yeah, that's know? right. Yeah, yeah. And then the next weekend the game – you're getting called on stuff that you haven't been getting called on all weekend or all yeah. season. And then the next weekend it just goes on to something else. And I find, I feel like it shouldn't ebb and flow like that. I feel like the umpire. I mean, hold, hold, the holding same. the ball, holding the ball has been the big one. Like that was, you know, that was so hard. But part of me after a while was like, okay, I'm going to give in to the madness of this. Let the complete random nature where you'll see the exact same play happen within 30 seconds of each other and two different decisions occur. It's kind of like deliberate. I remember um, taking an American friend of mine to watch a game and there was a deliberate decision and he asked what was going on. So I explained to him that, yeah, the umpire is saying that that player took the ball deliberately out of bounds. And my friend was like, but how does he know that? And I'm like, well, he's just made that decision. He's like, yeah, but in a court of law, it takes like six months to prove intent. And you're saying this umpire can decide on the spot. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess that doesn't make any sense. How did you go explaining unrealistic to him? <laughs> like an unrealistic oh, attempt. Oh, no. Yet, you know, the difference between unrealistic and the greatest mark that's ever happened are so yeah. enormous. And and unrealistic just means oh, people aren't going to try and go for those beautiful steps. I had forgotten about unrealistic. Unrealistic. Is, so that weird. Is fantastic, it's so judgmental. It's so judgmental. It's like, you know, I come out wearing a size six dress and say to my sister, do you reckon she goes a little unrealistic? Nah. <laughs> Turn around. Off you go. <laughs> that ship has sailed, my friend. Has there been um, many low points being a Hawthorne supporter? Is there one in particular that you're like, oh, no. You know, every time they bring out images of that banner with the um, with the tropes of the African American, you know, um, washerwoman, I feel sick to my stomach. And you know, the fact that we didn't have Indigenous players at Hawthorne for such a long time, and that you know that was kind of the hallmark of, of our club. And I know that Collingwood was the same. Um, I feel real shame around that. Um, you know, watching the Adam Goods documentaries and seeing my team playing and and seeing supporters booing him um, almost made me leave the game forever. Um, so you know, I struggle with those things. I struggle. I struggle with you know the misogyny and racism that does kind of attach itself to to our game and to the supporters and to the culture of it. And hopefully, as being number one ticket holder, I I am trying to kind of um, I don't know, just kind of offer an alternative view and gently prod people in different directions without beating them over the head. I think it's better for the game when everyone feels included. So mm. I think they're I think they're the lowlights, but um, like they're the lowlights across the whole code. And you know, I love the code. I love the game. Um, I mean, I, but other than that, I, I, there's really nothing I can, <laughs> there's nothing I can complain about. <laughs> 
sometimes I've, I've struggled with administrative decisions, but it's probably best for me to not get into that right now. But, um, you know, I think, I think on a whole, I think the club really tries to try to excel. And I always feel like as a member, they're doing their best for me. And I don't know if other people feel that way about their clubs. I see there's so much anger about, you know, people microwaving their memberships or whatever. Um, I've never felt that anger and maybe that's because we've had so much success, but I also do trust in the process of the board and, and the president. I mean, how could, are you seriously going to complain to the chef? Like, look at the feast you've been having for your entire life. Totally. Are you really going to say there's something wrong with this I, meal? No I way. I feel like you were setting me up for that. So I think I really <laughs> dodged a bullet. <laughs> I'm not going to complain to you. I promise. I'm really, I'm proud of the club. Like, I'm really proud mm. of the amount of people who've come through coaching with Clarko who've gone on to have success at other clubs. I'm re- I think I really truly believe in mentorship and I believe in you know, making good people who are good for the game. And I love seeing that, you know, that Hodgie and Ruffy have gone on to have these um, opportunities, just like a lot of the players out of, you know, out of Jean's era were also able to go and get those jobs. And, you know, they weren't as successful. I mean, you know, Schwabby and Bacchanar and Rodney Eid and stuff like that, I, I, you know, they all had their names bandied about a whole lot. But um, it'll be interesting to see where this kind of current crop go yeah i mean it feels like the storyline for this year is that what can clarko do like this is probably the biggest challenge he's ever had to face and i think that you know damien hardwick is sort of breathing down his neck now in terms of like reputation and i think that it'll just be i i will never write off clarko i think he's amazing like i think you know he can be combative and and difficult but i think he brings something so unique to the game and and the way he evolves and the way he changes, like the knock on uh, Ross Lyon when he was at St Kilda and then obviously went into Frio was always like, well, you can give Ross Lyon a great list and then, you know, he'll take them as far as they can go, almost win three flags with them. But Clarko seems to do that and more And this. He took a lot of flack for the, the trading and the recruitment policy of the last few years, but I think that was... I thought that was worth trying. And now Hawthorne are just back where most teams go. You know, they have to sort of go back go back to the draft. But what are your feelings about this year? Like, do you feel like Clarker was nearing the end or do you want to see, do you think he's got, a, he's got like another ace up the sleeve? Well, I feel like watching what they've done with where they've put Sam Mitchell and obviously he's going to be coaching Box Hill. Um, mm. I think that that's going to be... Uh, this is I don't know anything so I'm just making this up but I would imagine that that that's a really strategic move um, oh yeah <laughs> and that Clarko yeah. will I would imagine we'll see um, Sam Mitchell in the coaching box a lot with Clarko and potentially Clarko in the coaching box with Sam Mitchell um, I think the bigger question is what will Clarko do next I mm. really go to another club um, I reckon he'll still stick around for another couple of years and I think Hawthorne would do everything in their power to keep him. But, you know, it's never – like, Clark goes one thing, but Graham Wright's been an amazing right-hand man. So so was Fags to him as well. And, you know, even Andrew Russell and, and the team that he, he pulls together teams. He's just a phenomenal organiser like that. And yeah. so – Look, I, I never put anything past Clarko. And I think that we've got a lot of young players. Like, I love Ollie Hanrahan, and he didn't play that much last season. And we've got I, – I, like, I feel like there's some players that they've been developing that, that 
maybe towards the end of last season because of COVID and because of the travel and because of the hubs and all that kind of stuff, I feel like they did a little bit of rebuilding in that pocket where they maybe wouldn't have started doing that so early in the season had it not been for the hubs and, and the weird situation. And I do yeah. think that Clarko responds really well to, you know, to global, he has a pretty global kind of acknowledgement response. And so I feel like they, the team will have been really well looked after because they've got really mature heads in there. And I don't know if that would be the same for every club, because I think, you know, you look at North, they have had so much, um, you know, new coach, coach leaves, administration changing, all those kinds of things happening while they've been mm. in a hub. That can't be settling. That just can't be, you know, how does how do you kind of get your best performances in, in that environment, whereas Hawthorne's a pretty steady ship. So I'm really interested to see because he's so creative and that's what we love. Mm. He's so creative about it. Like there was, uh, we were at the Peter Crimmins medal last year, um, not last year, the year before, and Clarko was meant to speak for like 10 minutes. And I actually think it was Liam Shields said to me afterwards, welcome to Clarko's TED Talk. Because he got up and he spoke for like an hour in the end and everything was pushed out like like Clarko cares. But he talked about what matters, what matters is family, what matters is how people feel, what matters is how people are going. And I was just like, right on, Oprah. Like, it was amazing. <laughs> and so, you know, if he's doing that at the, at the PCM, then he's going to be doing that to his players. And I think he does, I think he does have that, have that really individual approach where he sees that not all people are made out of the same mold. So I think he, I think he's got people on ice and he's like, Oh, over here, I'm working on that with that guy. And I'm going to send you over there to speak to that one. And, and I think that somehow he has this holistic kind of approach, but I do think I would love to know what's on his um bedside table for what he reads and what he watches because I reckon he's one of those guys that just is you know constantly listening to Tim Ferriss on podcasts and writing down all the notes of his of what he's been you know listening to and I think that he does a lot of reading and a lot of looking outside of football you know whether it's to into creative spaces or you know innovation technology business whatever it is to try and get an edge and so I'm always yeah. looking to see what that's going to be he's like the Beyonce you know Beyonce 2.0 yeah. is like yeah. 10 years ago yeah. so you know Clarko can just Beyonce this season and and who knows we might be back there in in September yeah you could just imagine Clarko settling into his armchair his glasses on his nose he opens the book he just slips in that Daryl Braithway CD starts playing horses he's <laughs> Does he, pick up the guitar? Does he pick up the guitar and struggle? <laughs> no, no, this is no, this is meditative time. This is just okay. his reading time. Uh, uh, you say that uh, uh, Clarko gave a TED talk, but you have just given us our own very own TED talk about Hawthorne Football Club. Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know what? I think if there's any people out there who do have a grudge against Hawthorne supporters, they're going to listen to this and they're going to they're going to change their tune. You're very convincing that the Hawthorne should not be disliked. We should just be like in admiration of what you guys have been able to do. <laughs> or have I just been hypnotised? I don't know. <laughs> That's what we like to do. We like to charm you. To be to be fair, if they really hate Hawthorne, they probably didn't click on this in the first place. So I'm probably <laughs> preaching to the converted, Charlie. But it's been so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, get out of the car. Get inside and have a cup of Milo. <laughs> we are two guys, one cup.